decoded. Many sectors is that the way people think in this space, I think, is, is, is very hopeful and very open and very values driven. I think everybody's, Hattie and I were discussing this before the event, everybody's aware of if we're going to reimagine the ecosystem, let's try and not take the, the biases and the, and the inefficiencies that have kind of baked into this version, into the next version. But also, everybody, I think, sees that there's, there's this ability to drive this out of the UK. I think that's one thing that's really, really prominent that actually you can, maybe from this room of people, um, I was saying to Ken, there's this myth about the Sex Pistols gig in 1978, the free, free, um, free Hall, where there's only about 70 people in the room. And they all went on to sort of change the face of music, supposedly, everyone who was in that room. And it's like, I do feel like here that actually there is the talent to do something and change this. And most of this is not really about technology, it's about behavioural change, it's about structural change, it's about sort of value changes. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. And I've tried to design the four areas, which we've spent about 20, 25 minutes on each. We'll obviously, we'll talk to the guys uh, on the panel um, and then open it up. I, I will want it at a time because I do want to get through them and try and open up the conversation um, so that you can kind of see what I think are the most salient points um, from the podcast and how maybe together we can kind of open that up into something else. So without further ado, the first one has got a, a problem-based symmetry. And the reason I started with that is because I think it's the thing that everybody feels who sort of starts in this space. Everybody in this space, whether you're a founder or an investor, but particularly founders, particularly first-time founders, particularly founders not from London, um, you know, who are not driven by white guys from London, you know, it, they find it really, really difficult to deal with the asymmetry between founder, the founder and investor. It's a real, real problem, and it's baked into the system. Somehow it's got into everything. So it felt like an interesting place to start. So I thought I'd invite up Serkan from Pitchbase, Ken from the Startup Lexicon, and Martin from um, Pitch Club to kind of talk through these things. And it literally will be a very, very casual way of talking through these deal points. We can obviously veer. I'll try and keep it on point, and then we'll open each section up for questions, and it will be turned into some kind of live podcast as well. So welcome, and thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Under the very pithy title, the recalibration of deal communication, what I mean by this so can maybe we start, maybe everybody just introduce themselves like with a one-liner, just kind of so we've done, done all of that. Um, so each person is just kind of say, I'm starting you, Serkan. What, yeah, what, sure, yeah. of course. So I'm Serkan, I'm the founder of Pit Space. I'm also a first-time founder, but I have worked with startups for more than seven years. Hi, I'm Ken Baladi. I co-founder a company called Progressive, so we connect corporates to startups. And then in my spare time, I, as Dan said, I've also written a book about um, startup language. I'm Martin. I'm a crocodile wrestler. <laughs> I do. I've got the scars. Um, when I'm not wrestling crocodiles, I'm a pitch coach, and I help people really embrace this moment and connect and tell the right stories so they're building those relationships. Martin, I'm actually going to start with you because you probably see early, more early stage pitches than maybe anyone in the room in terms of live people rehearsing them. Do you want to talk about? The sort of your journey with people pitching, you know, like how that's changed, how it's sort of moved, if, if it's moved on from the pitch day, just that, and how, when you meet someone for the first time who's learning how to pitch, um, what, what, what are the assumptions they come into? What the, what's the nervousness? What's their hopes? Can you just talk about that? 
Yeah, so I, I run my community pitch club. We've done, this week will be 146 events on LinkedIn, and it was probably 300 in total. We started on a rooftop in Beijing, and it was all about, let's get people on stage feeling the spotlight. Because you can read the books, you can listen to the podcast, the book, you know, you can get all the information in your head, but then actually, how do you demonstrate that? And one of the biggest things, so every pitch club, we get five three-minute pitches, and we've got one of our amazing stories is Tusimi, who is uh, a refugee from Uganda, probably the hardest childhood anyone's ever had. He's come to our community. He has taken up every single offer. And then he's gone to an African starting a startup event, 200 startups. He was the one that they chose because he made it happen for himself. And he had this incredible growth mindset, like I'm going to jump on every opportunity people put out there. And then almost as privileged people, we overthink it and we're stuck in our own heads going, oh my God, it has to be perfect and it has to do, you know, oh, I'm, what are people gonna... And the thing that I really try to encourage is like, just start and start really small and don't overthink it because that sort of information, access to so much information is almost par paralysis. We don't start. And I think that um, all of the tools, and especially within the founder tech community that Dan's built, that we've, I, like, I listen to every episode and I'm like, yeah, that, that, that makes so much sense. And we have access to all this thing, but it's also like, just do it. And it's like, it sounds like a cliche, but it's, that's the thing that I've seen and I really try to encourage that it doesn't have to be perfect and that you're only gonna improve. It's all about the next pitch. And it's all about, that's what that's the big thing that I'm getting out to people. So how much of that, and maybe, talking to Serkan about what he's doing is still linked to a pitch deck and people's expectation of what a pitch deck needs to achieve with this intended audience of an investor. How much, how much is that still baked in those kind of hardwired assumptions? People, once, one thing that happened recently, a founder I work with approached me on LinkedIn and we built his pitch deck and he's just got a million pounds as a first time founder. And he, he gave me follow up and I was like, how did it go? Wow, that's awesome. Tell me the story. And he goes, I didn't use the pitch deck. And I'm like, my, my identity, that's what I did. Where's my case study? And he said the chat, the plan massively changed. He had this one target high net worth individual. We built the pitch for him. That didn't work out. He pivoted to plan B, C, D. His, his wife gave him a book. He read a book. He read, in the chapter of a book was a profile of an investor. He took the cold email outline that we created for somebody else, modified it, emailed it over to that guy. Two weeks later, the phone rings and he gets a two minute phone call. Pum, 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 pum. He says enough of the right stuff. And the guy's like, I'm in. And then a year later, they've done the whole due diligence and the money's there. And the founder came back and he said, if we hadn't gone through the pitch building process, I never could have had the phone call. And so the way that I see it is like building a pitch deck is a bit like um, screenwriters writing a movie script. You have to have something tangible to sign it off. What actually happens on set can change because the director or, you know, people can ad lib, you know, let's say you're Joaquin Phoenix, you're going to rip the script up and say, I want to do it this way. And so I think you need the pitch deck, but you're not, the pitch deck isn't the thing that makes the difference. You're the, you're the pitch. And so it's like, you need the, you need the tangible, but you also have to have the confidence to go flexible. So let, let's bounce that over to um, Serkan. You know, when you 
took on the pitch deck as a legacy tool, what was it that you started to think about? I think a lot of what Martin says carries over from the conversation that we've had in terms of kind of like, why did you think that that tool now was up for grabs, like to be able to reinvent it? It is, it, there are a few reasons behind that. One of them is there is a lot of confusion among founders about the pitch itself as general. When we talk about pitch deck, people think about the slides that you show behind you while pitching. But on the other hand, we have another pitch deck that you send to investors, which is the long form pitch deck. So we call them investment deck. And then you have a one pager and then you have your outreach message. So the, the pitch as a whole is actually a giant thing that you have to work out. It's not just one deck, one 15 slide deck. And as I work with the older founders, either through one-to-one experience or either uh, through the version Startup Accelerator, we were educating every single founder the same way, regardless of their experience, because the mindset is quite different when it comes to the, the pitch. And people tend to forget about what they actually need to talk about. They think about the numbers or the, the ticket, and that's it, right? But they forget the narrative side of it, which is the most important thing, actually. Not just with invest investors, with your, for, for your traction, for your user acquisition, for your relationships, partners. You need the narrative. So you build their entire relationship around that narrative. And that narrative can change and changes if you're a founder. Sometimes every day it changes. So you need to take the investors or your stakeholders to an extended journey. But as Martin said, it is an exercise that every founder has to go through. In our experience, for instance, we've got users who signed up to PitSpace to build their investment decks and then called me or emailed me to say that they realized after seeing the questions, they are not ready for investment because A, they can't answer all of these, all those questions. And when they see the examples of those answers, they see they, they don't have the, the mentality or they don't have the strategy or the plan in place yet. So they can't actually go to the investors, which is a huge add value to the ecosystem because it increases the quality of the deal flow. But also it helps founders to avoid that frustration or um, disappointment when they go to the market. So we still, I believe we, st we still need to pitch this, this. There is no way it's going to go anyway. It's the, the one form of the narrative that we deliver. But the format of it can stay as a deck, can be just an email message, can be just a, a conversation that you have. Uh, but that deck is almost like the organizer of your thoughts that you use to put together that pitch. Even though you don't use it, I think every founder should revisit that process, like probably every six months, maybe every quarter, to to see where it started and where it got to. Even myself, I, I built the algorithm. I designed the algorithm. I got the formula and asked me, each time I have to develop my pitch, I lose my sleep because you have to update the narrative. You have to build that narrative each time you develop the idea and everything changes, especially in early days for the first time founders, everything changes every day. So how are you going to keep up with that? One of the things you said that really stuck when we spoke is that you said the actual people forget that the output of it is a relationship. 
Yes. And if you don't remember that, it becomes, you get lost. If you yeah. realize that you're building a dynamic, ongoing relationship, and then and then the pitch deck is or pitch space as you're imagining it is simply a, a delivery mechanic of that relationship. Yeah. You know, it becomes different. And this is part of that recalibration of that of that deal community. You're starting to see it like that. So Ken, when you <coughs> decided to write this book, which must have been with Eamon, and which must have been a whole trip in itself to try and capture the language, I imagine because you know Eamon also runs a or co-founder of a fund that's founded mm -hmm. Driven, and it must a lot of it must have been decrypting, deciphering unnecessarily hard language so that people can have so founders and, uh, and investors can actually have a dialogue. Is that is that a bit one of the core intents of it? Or? Yeah, I mean the, the reason behind the book initially was. So I, my, my life is literally joining corporates up with startups. So I get briefs from the corporate world. So I don't deal with the investor world. I deal with the corporate world, which is another beast completely. And, and I've got views on pitch decks. I think I see a lot of founders hide behind their pitch deck and they don't want to talk outside that pitch deck because, but that's where I think that the value is being yourself outside the deck. And, but, but the reason the book came about was when I was in the corporate world and the brand side, and I went into the startup world, I was bombarded with all this language like roadmap burn my convertible notes. I thought, oh my goodness, what does all this mean? And I was so egotistical, I just kind of winged it, to be blunt. And I, was, I, I look it up afterwards, and I nodded and whatever. And I thought, I can't keep this up, because these words are just forever coming at me. And I've known Eamon for a long time, and Eamon obviously is much more versed than, than I am, and, and was even back, back then. And I just said to Eamon, I, I'm coming across more and more people now who are almost worried at some point about how much language there is out there in the startup world, and they feel like it's a barrier to them to do anything, because I, I can't, I can't talk to an investor. They're, they're, they're like dragons den. I can't handle that, and all these words and phrases, I can't handle that. It's not for me. I stay where I am. And I just thought, okay, it's one or two people, but it kind of got bigger and bigger. And I'm not saying I'm holier than ho, and I, I opened a door for thousands, far from it. But I just thought, one, I was lucky. I kind of got through winging it. But there'd be lots of people out there who would go to one meeting and think this is not for me, and they may have an amazing business idea that has gone. Because I just go back to the day job, and so so I, I had a personal crusade of let's just be blunt and get these words out there. Um, and Eamon, I just quite the name to just do it. Eamon, the, the funny thing is, Eamon and I lived off a, a Google Doc spreadsheet for about six months, like a marriage around a document. You just caught words. We just we did well. The funny thing is, when I first thought about writing the book, a friend joked about startups and it's all full of whatever, all these words they use. So I just said to myself, in this next week, every time I talk to someone in my job. And they mentioned a phrase that I wouldn't have known when I was in the corporate world. I, I listed it. And in three days, I had about 40 words. I thought, well, that's just three days. But then I forgot about it. I was saying to someone earlier, I forgot about it. And then about two years, three years later, my wife said to me during COVID, whatever happened to that book? And I thought, well, I've got to do this book, but I'm not going to do it on my own because I don't know all the words. So I got Eamon in. But to answer your question, I think Eamon and I, we try to decipher things and demystify it. And But even Eamon and I got up to certain words and I thought, I didn't even know it meant that. And Eamon's, I thought, and we were actually having discussions about what the word means. Because if you Google some of the words in the book, there are different reasons, or not reasons, different definitions coming back. So it's not as easy as we thought it, not easy, but it was more difficult than we thought it would be. Yeah. There was a lot of discussion. Um, but at the end of the day, the hardest thing was actually letting it go. Because it's not a book like a, a novel or a love yeah, story yeah, or anything, yeah. it's a definitions book. But you get very funny about, or oh, let's put a comma there, and all that kind of stuff. So we had to just let it go. And, and I was saying the other day, there's, there's a few more words that need to go into the next edition. So, but do it was you, trying to help people over that line. Do you think 
it was sort of trying to take a kind of a hard line against mm. it that, that there is a vested interest because throughout the tonight, I obviously want to build this thing to the legacy yeah. in the system and where it could go. Do you think there's a vested interest in that sort of hierarchy of words and that being sort of slightly hard to penetrate? Like, Absolutely. The, 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 so where does that come? Is it, is it literally just like an inherited interest or is uh, uh, it? It's a bit like old IT departments in big companies. When I was at ABM there, if you go to the IT department, you say my laptop doesn't work and they go, it's blah, blah, blah. I've got no idea what you're talking about. Just fix the laptop. And I yeah. think to a certain extent, it's the same in the startup world and without being, I think the investor side is quite protective about these words as well. And, and I just think it shouldn't be like that. I mean, this book is not an encyclopedia. It's a starter for 10 on some of the terms, but I just think it's, it's, it's I don't know, ego, I don't know what it is, but there is a de there's definitely walls created to give someone a, an unfair advantage maybe in the conversation. And I just think people should go to it at least starting from the same point. And, and the reference I always do is, um, and I'm older than a lot of people in this room, but if you go back 20 or 30 years into the wine industry in this country, no one talked about wine because all I knew when I was younger was red wine with meat and white wine with fish. That's yeah. all you knew. So I'd never talked to him about wine. And then all of a sudden the wine people started to give you, you know, certain grapes. And then if you knew a grape, you knew a brand, you had an experience, that's enough. You sit down with someone who might be a connoisseur and you say, I like a Merlot from Argentina and I had a lovely one the other week at a friend's house over there. And you're in, people accept you, and you've got the confidence to get into that conversation. And in a funny way, I think the book, if it gives you two or three words that you're struggling on, you get a buff idea of what they mean, then if that keeps you in a conversation, then in my view, I think that book's done its job because it just keeps you in that conversation. Whereas I think before it's like, my God, this is like an exam. I'm gonna get caught out. And we all know how difficult it is to start a business. There's always a hundred reasons in your head why you shouldn't do it. And if we can just knock one of those reasons out, which is this barrier of language, for whatever, why, why it's a, a, a came about, I, don't, I can't really say, but you know, if, if we can just get a couple of those barriers down and make someone make that first step, then yeah, yeah fantastic. So I, we could just probably spend 20 minutes no, no, on, no, on no. that itself, but the, yeah. but the build into that, because this came up on an uh, episode that you were on, Martin, where um, the concept of the fast no, mm. that we've leaned on quite a lot, you did a great illustration, which probably be up there, but the, um, that most founders in their communication would prefer a very quick, fast no, and yet we're full of these slow maybes, like, and, and are wrapped in this language. And that's part of, um, seems like founder tech's mission is to increase the clarity, increase, increase the channels so these things can be known quicker. Mm -hmm. like, you, like, like you said, in the tools you design, it's, it's feedback loops that are valuable. And again, so much of what seems to get lost is in this sort of back and unnecessarily back and forth. It's taking months that could take minutes. Um, and that phrase has just kind of resonated, didn't it, from the moment it was said this, this fast no. And I think it links to exactly what you're talking to, Ken, which is, which is you know, there's no need for it to be complex other than when it needs to be complex. Sometimes there's things need to be complex and they need, you, you don't know. But when it's not, who is it serving? And I think founder tech really embraces that it's not scared of that it wants to leverage that it wants to it wants to sort of increase the uh transparency increase the fluid and, and i think that's really interesting because because there are all these legacy biases and it, we don't almost need to kind of like point fingers that we got to do is engineer it engineer it differently um so I, i'm trying to think of, of maybe maybe everyone could think who what their favorite fast no you know, there's some people have some really good or worse slow maybe. Everyone's got that kind of that story of that founder where it's taken like months and you've seen them devastated because they just found out something, you know, in their, their two quarters in and they've depleted their cash flow and, and they could have found that. So 
maybe we can, maybe there's a question there. Um, so this is this is this rebooting of the legacy systems tools and frameworks. I'd like to know from each of you um, how far away you think that is from being able to kind of reboot. Let's sit here with these things that we're talking about, just not being in the uh, ether, like where, we, where we're in this new space. So can how how far away do you think that is when when you're planning and thinking about this? Uh, empty space, our user base is getting younger every day. And most of our users are between 18 and 35 now. And the way they talk about startup world and they engage and what they expect it to be is very different from people who we generally see in the ecosystem. And when you look at the, the products that are being built, still built, in the ecosystem. You can see there is a pattern. They Somehow the ecosystem is trying to build the same thing in a better way, right. rather than dramatically changing it. And I think we need that in the ecosystem. We haven't seen it yet, but the new generation of founders coming are just not going to want that. They don't want it because they don't understand it. And investors, you know, and who investors have been founders, well. solo capitalists. You know, exactly, because SPV. the legacy systems cannot facilitate transparency, cannot facilitate, can facilitate communication or connection, but none of that, those two means relationship. And the, the legacy systems can also not facilitate relationship. So we have been, and also engagement. Yeah. So we need new systems that can facilitate those relationships, engagements, and also narrative, shared narratives within the ecosystem. And I think we will definitely start seeing those examples. So you think two years, three years, five years, what do you think until there's enough of a wave of, of, of those people? Well, I can say we are working on it. So pretty soon we are going to start seeing some examples of that in the ecosystem. Yeah. And I expect to see more, especially with the pace of development in AI. I think the focus is going to shift from automation to relationships and what's the role of human beings in this economy now. And for that reason, I think pretty soon, in a, let's say three, five years time, you will start seeing much more different things than we see now. Martin, do you see that happen? Do you agree with that timeline, two, three years? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's conservative, I'd say. It could be a lot quicker. I mean, the reason I, I so I got into presentations and pitching in 2012 when I got made redundant in Beijing and I left an agency. And I chose presentations because it's completely evergreen. And I have this idea that the cave paintings were the world's first startup pitch. Like, we have to survive the winter. How are we going to do that? <laughs> if we all run in different directions, we're not going to get the mammoth. <laughs> and I, I, that's the story I tell myself, and I say it all the time. But I think, like, the fact that I need to communicate an idea to somebody else, and that idea has to be, my idea has to become their idea, that's never going to change. But how we do it, like, whether it's pitch space, Pitch Club, Notion, like the PPTs are like, I think they're literally like, they're the thing that won't die, headshot, headshot, headshot. <laughs> um, but, you know, it could be next year that the trend shifts, because I think we're at that tipping point and all the people here, we're all, we're all banging our drums in our own community and collectively banging them here and it, I think it will happen quick. Um, so you've got second edition coming out. Mm. Is that a well, hopeful thing or is that a bad thing? Like it says, are you, is it just, it's just too many words, too much language, or are you, are you updating it? Or 
No, well, I I think there'd be a, I mean, Eamon and I are thinking about doing a second edition back end of this year, but I, I reckon there'd be another 50, 60 plus words going in there. New new words. New words. And and I, I logged them as I, as I think they could be relevant. I haven't sat down with Eamon yet and worked out what we're going to put in there. There might be some words going out, I don't know yet, but <clears throat> it's always evolving. <coughs> I think I think the, the, the great thing about it in a way is, and I mentioned earlier about letting it go and and launching it is once you do it once you realize it's never going to be not dated but it's it's never yeah. it, it, it evolves and it's quite traditional it's a, it's it's on kindle but it's 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 good old fashioned book so in itself it's quite dated in a funny way once it's printed but yeah they've been a, a new um set of words whatever you call a set of words um in in the new edition and some new stories as well because there's stories in the book as well but that will always try and we, you know we talk about pitch text everything <coughs> is Never know that the term pitch deck may one day go or pitch itself in my own. Is, is I think it, I think to, to your point, I think I think things are changing quite a lot. There's younger people coming in. There's demand. Corporates are definitely catching up with things as well. So you might get a different scenario in five years' time or two yeah. years' time where, where where things just are faster. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes longer, which is a bit of an indifferent answer. <laughs> um. Just the wrap up of this section. Is there are there any questions before we move on to the next section? Patsy? I've got one now. You just said that, but would it ever be a, like a live document? Because I, I think it's I we've, we've actually talked a long time ago about it, and I think it's fascinating. But I think you're right. There is a barrier to access because you have to discover mm -hmm. it and then buy it, and then and actually, <clears throat> yeah. Would, would you ever do a live version? That's well. <laughs> We were, we were talking earlier about this. So when Eamon and I first talked about doing the book, we had this lovely meet in a pub over two or three Guinnesses, and we had these ideas what we're going to do with a book. And it was going to be a kind of a, an app, and you could click on things. It gives all these references to the word and videos and everything. And yes, you could actually have a live, ongoing, up-to-date platform experience. But to be blunt, it just takes time, money to, to do that. But that's not definitely an option. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm open for any <laughs> offer. I mean, we're, we're never, we want to, we both want to put more into it. It's become our baby. So if there's ways of making it more um, relevant in terms of being up to date, absolutely. It's still quite nice doing a book, but I appreciate things have moved on as well. Um, and we were talking about a, um, a uh, audio version, which I think would be, even though I've written a book, quite a dull thing to listen to, A, etc. But Insomnia, it could actually help people in that, but, but you never know. I mean, would you ever get to Z? I mean, it's 200 plus words in it, but um, or definitions. But no, absolutely. I, 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 I think if we if we do a second edition, which I'm confident we will, then to a certain extent, we can't ignore other formats and platforms to 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 keep it live and more um, relevant in real time. Would you give us a version that we could all plug into, so that if yeah. anyone on the platform Instead of understand a word, we can just put yeah, it. Yeah, well, founders would love it, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a really. It's just, it's just, it sounds a really poor excuse. It's just getting the sitting down and working out how we're going to no, do no. it. But it's not. It's we. Yeah, we have a, a sheet on the spreadsheet with all of our ideas. So we're going to do with the book. We've got to work our way through them. <laughs> to be honest, but yes, absolutely. We're 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 not. We're not going to stop where we are. I want to do different things with the book. Okay, before we move on, anyone, anyone else? Okay, a second, can you stay there for the next one? Okay. Um, can I ask Hattie and Chris to join us? 
Thanks a lot, guys. So, do you want to introduce yourselves? Oh, <laughs> thanks. Um, uh, Hattie Willis, I'm the founder of a couple of companies. One is called Guessworks. We go and do coaching and training with early stage founders. And the second is called If We Raise. So our goal is to try and democratize access to the knowledge and ultimately the capital that sits in the startup ecosystem for underrepresented founders, which unfortunately I have to list like five different massive categories if I'm going to say who we help there. So we can come on to that, but. Nice. I'm Chris Booth. I'm a founder of a company called Finders. We do talent and recruitment services for startups and scale-ups, helping founders decide on what to hire and then helping them go and find who to hire after that. And so help them go through that whole talent acquisition journey. Okay. So on this, on this part, uh, um, we're going to look at the conditions for founder tech. Um, what, what set it in motion? One of the key things that I remember thinking was uh, first start the shift was this no code, low code and the diminishment of the MVP uh, in venture conversations where that was no longer the thing that was front of the house and having to raise so much capital and know how to do so. When that started to fall and you actually could use a no code, low code solution to in, in whatever that meant to sort of prove something for much le lower cost, I thought that was a, a sort of a really important domino to fall. Hattie and I were talking uh, earlier, um, I, I called it minimum viable adoption, but you had a better name, like minimum viable experiment, MVE, it's much better. Um, <laughs> Get it in and, the book. And the, uh, yeah, in the book. <laughs> um, I don't think it's my turn, but. <laughs> <laughs> but what obviously we're talking about that is that there's this, what we, I think we need to do is raise the status of what an exceptional founder can do or prove that they're an exceptional founder with almost the least amount of capital possible, like what can they demonstrate mm. in an MVE um, to show that they are that right founder to fix that problem? Do you want to elaborate on on the MVEs and and uh, and what how you see that and, and also the, the relationship to no code, low code, and that that shift? Yeah. Um, so ah, so much in that. I'm trying. I'll try and be concise. Yeah. So so MVE, obviously, the idea that we can we can test much more quickly where that gets really, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm at the end of a cold, where that gets really exciting for me personally is, well, what does that do to diversify access to capital? So actually, if you don't have to have had huge injections of cash up front, but you can prove that there is demand, and I, we were talking earlier, I think one of the really genuinely exciting things that's happened out of the terrible fundraising environment right now is that there is a bigger focus on getting to revenue, which is harder if you've had less capital into the business but actually does mean that you can help founders of all stages you can push them much more to say well i know it's uncomfortable to launch earlier with something that feels buggier but actually that's putting you on the right path whether you want to raise or not um so yeah i, th I think uh, the idea of an mve is really exciting i think the challenge that then <clears throat> underpins it all as we were discussing is is equal versus equitable uh so you can say okay well everyone can do a minimum viable experiment, but actually who has access to the resources, the time to go and do those tests is still not going to be equal, even if it's cheaper, lower code. So we still need more interventions in the ecosystem to actually make it equitable. So the idea that <clears throat> I'm going to be judged by the access and the resources I've had and the output, therefore, that I've been able to show with that access should be different 
you know, as, as someone who went to Oxbridge, I've had a ton of opportunity. I've got a network that maybe gives me a massive advantage. So maybe that should be treated differently to someone who is juggling multiple jobs to pay the bills, doesn't have that time. Maybe they have caring responsibilities as well. So I th yeah, I think these terms get really exciting and I think we just need to be really nuanced in how we then look at them. It's not just like a blanket, this makes it accessible. There's a lot within there. That was a bit rambling. Do you want to do you want to just talk <laughs> talk about the um, the thing about not again carrying the biases? You started to allude that, but how important that is, and how you can have these unintended consequences. So you set up a whole new way of doing it. Let's say these these MBEs, whatever whatever it may be, starts to become the norm. But then it has. I mean, you were alluding to it. These other biases. And then how do you even begin to address the yeah. sort of unknown unknowns of that? You know, and stuff like that. But, do you want to talk about the word, how how we might be able to put that front of mind? Yeah. So and, and and like being candid, we were talking about it earlier, and and it is super exciting to be in a room of people who are trying to shape the the next wave of actually what supports founders. Um, but we are in danger. I mean, if you look around this room, it is exceptionally. Isn't this is the most male room I've been in a really long time? Um, and, and actually, it's an exceptionally white room as well. And there will be a ton of other, you know, middle class, I suspect, biases in here, educational biases in here. And if we're not really careful, we carry those all onto the next version. Um, and it's something my co-founder and I have looked at a lot originally. So my co-founder is a white guy. And originally I was really honest when I was looking for a co-founder, I actually just was asking him like, I'm looking for a co-founder. I don't want a white guy as a, like a co-founder. I'm a white woman, I have a ton of that privilege and I just don't understand the lived experiences of fundraising as a person of color, for instance. So I, in the nice possible way, it can't be you. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> he had ended up adding so much value to the idea that it was as much his as mine and the chemistry was right. But now we've had to be very conscious of, well, there is a ton of bias just in the founding team. So how do we build out our advisory board much more deliberately so that we have different perspectives without still putting the weight on one person to represent an entire community, which again, they won't like, I'm never gonna, you know, I might speak as a woman in a room and I'm not gonna represent all women and I really like to not have to. Um, so I think, again, a bit rambly, but it's a, it's upon us as people who get to reshape the ecosystem, hopefully, and I'm really excited by the initiatives in the room, so I genuinely hope they will, to be very cognizant of what are we carrying forward and how are we deliberately engineering out those negative externalities um because there are so many i mean the example we used earlier which i'd never given a second of thought to but my friend at the weekend was telling me um she's disabled and and she has a massive community of disabled friends which is something i don't have and she was saying that when um they got rid of they made the law against disposable straws actually what seemed like a great thing was actually not good for disabled people who needed those straws because they could then couldn't access them. Something I'd never had to give a second of thought to. And so it never even crossed my mind. I was just like, what a great initiative. And I think we're slightly in danger of doing that sometimes in the founder ecosystem, particularly when it's like, this is going to democratize access. Well, hopefully, but let's not avoid that it might accidentally reinforce some other bias or it might ignore some of the more complex intersectional biases that are at play. Yeah, and we'll come we'll come back to that because I think that there is so much there. Maybe and we you know we, it can never be perfect, but at yeah. least can be an attempt to to be aware of these things. Um, this idea of sort of ecosystem intelligence, Chris. When we when we talked, 
sort of one example of this sort of the evolving uh, role of data and the role of it, evolving role of Fanatec. The conversation with you is really interesting because it was the first time we applied it to um, sort of an adjacent domain in terms of recruitment. And we, I think you coined the, the phrase uh, chief founder tech officer as being someone who, you know, might be in charge of, 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 of this, uh, of how founder tech could uh, re-engineer the company. And then we got into this really interesting insight of actually the companies, the startups that use these tools properly are more attractive to retain talent and, 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 and get better talent. And then that feeds into investors who can then see We'll talk about that chain of thought, uh, 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 you know, that, that we, particularly this idea of what a chief founder tech officer might look like and why it might differ from a, you know, CTO. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept and it, it was a good conversation around it because it made me think a lot around a lot of the startups that I work with and the successful ones, the common denominator is usually a fast feedback loop. So they'll go out, they'll test, um, they'll try something, they'll test it and they'll learn from it quickly. But what we find is when we start to build a team together, that ability to get the feedback loop quickly is, is diminished. We, we might bring some junior people into the company who slow things down a little bit because there's coaching and mentoring that needs to go through with that junior person. We might hire a couple of devil's advocates and you know every startup has a couple um, which might challenge the test or might challenge the data. Um, and the idea of someone to hold founder tech as a, as a responsibility or be accountable to to founder tech to say you know this is what we're building in terms of um or this is what we're using to build our mvp or even if it's this is what we're using to um go to market on our email campaigning or on our sales tools on our outreach that kind of thing and someone who can be accountable to that to the founder tech and then measure them as a tactic so i always say that when we build teams and we look at the ceo and the coo i always start with the ceo as a, the visionary of the, the company who's going to kind of paint the picture of what we're striving for. And the CEO will usually kind of say, well, for us to get from A to B, there needs to be some kind of strategy for us to get there. And then normally there's a COO who will translate that strategy into tactics and, and then measurement, some kind of KPI or, or OKR. And there's some kind of magic between the CEO and the COO. The good thing about chief founder tech officer is that they can do a similar role where they can take all the kind of founder tech that we're using to um, get more from less. So we hire less people into the business. We use tools, automation, generative AI, that kind of thing. But they're the ones who are going to be accountable to that, that tactical element and the, the measurement. So we're using outreach.io, for example. That's working. It's generating these leads for the business. Let's tweak it and see if we can optimize that. So that chief founder tech officer, for me, is taking a lot from that COO, probably more from the COO than it is from the CTO, in the sense of how do we take the strategy, translate that into tactics and measure it. And then someone needs to be accountable to make sure we don't end up in that beta zone where things are good enough. You know, someone needs to be there and kind of saying, we can do a lot better. What other founder tech can we use to get more investors through the door, get more customers through the door, build something that's going to be stickier with customers, whatever it might be. So that we, we said CTO when we first spoke, yeah. but I think I've moved towards more of a COO type persona who would manage that the tools in the and the systems in the business. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that and talk about how that attractive that that role is, but also what it signals to the market. But second, one of the, I was speaking to Tom, um, the last podcast of MVPR, and he was talking about like residual data, data, like in content intelligence and stuff like that, and that 
rather than it being in silos and you do a campaign and it just goes, you know, you forget about it. Actually, everything is starting to, Fanatec kind of accrues that data. You know, Christian kind of alluding to it that the chief Fanatec officer might be, you know, someone who has their eye on all of that and that that becomes an asset. Are you thinking like that? Uh, I'm not sure we, we talked about that idea when, 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 when we spoke. Are you thinking about that kind of incremental accruing data, the ability to kind of recall it in real time, it becomes an asset? Is that, has that, is that informing your design? It is actually because what we are planning to do is to connect that data and the feedback from the market with the actions of the founder and the team. When you connect them together, then you can see the actual story, the real story, what's really happening, not just in the business, but in the market, and how your actions are actually being reflected on the market performance. Then we could use that story that we generate from that data to feed back into your future decisions and strategic tactics, and then implement them as a strategy in you know going forward, yeah. which, which is then going to speed up the growth. And even we have plans to, well, I haven't shared that publicly yet, but um, <laughs> there is also a way to create playbooks around those stories yeah. and then enable more people to build businesses because all of these things that we talk about at early days is the founder's job. Um, I don't have the luxury to have, to have a CEO, like CRO or CTO, like every single person on my team at all the stages. So I'm not the CTO, but I become everything every day. So I have to mention, and I am accountable to everyone, my investors, myself, every, every, my users, everyone. So there are tools out there and it is not that difficult to create those tools. It only becomes easy when you actually start building those relationships with your fellow founders and people who help founders, including your angel investors. Because each time you engage with them, you interact with them, you learn something. And that knowledge transfer only happens if you build meaningful relationships. Then that even itself is a data for you to use as an input for your future relationships and yeah. then transfer it to your future fellow founders. So I want to tell that to what we're talking about. Do you think that this ability, I guess what Chris and Sir kind of alluding to, because one of one of the outputs of Fanatec is early on a much more efficient teams, smaller teams, mm. able to do a lot more. This kind of builds and lends itself to the agility of what we were talking about. And actually sort of again celebrating and heroing founders that create these core really small dynamic teams using all of this. And that that those are the people those are the people that are going to kind of signal again that you know, hey, we're doing this properly. Can you see that that starts to become you know, something that the, the, the market values. Yeah, hugely. I mean, Chris is actually uh, doing a talk for if we raise for our founders and for, it's free for anyone, specifically on this, because we think it's massive, like, lever for founders who are time poor as well as cash poor to be able to, like, leverage whether it, whatever tool it is. And, and, and I think where, where I got really excited when I chatted to Chris is I think what's sometimes really hard to do, which we said it earlier today, like you're, you're and, and you know, to your point, like you're doing everything, like sometimes it's so hard to eat, like surface, like what can I give away and what can I do faster? And actually having, you know, again, to your point, like someone who can, you know, it, it happens all the time in founder groups I'm in, we're like, has anyone tried this? Does it make it faster? You almost like want that, 
that signposting to know what questions should I be asking? How can I really meaningfully lift some weights off myself instantly so I can be much more strategic about where I invest longer term? So I, yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge. Um, and for any, any founder, it's, it's increasingly powerful. We're seeing like the investment landscape at the moment, you just have to do more with less. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when, just going to the third point, one of the terms that's come up again, is, it seems super useful is this idea of a scalable niche. And what that's talking to is this, this feeling, and I think the current um, investment landscape speaks to this, is there's this diminishment of horizontal, obvious B2B e-commerce opportunities sitting in pitch decks, um, in funnels. Um, and that smart founder, uh, sorry, investors are realizing that actually they're gonna have to back founders earlier in, the, in, these, in this way, in the, identify them via the way they're using Foundertech, also like, you know, like this MVE idea, um, but also that that's where the market opportunity is, that actually one of the promises of Foundertech is that if you can kind of find these people, and it speaks to the, the, the last point as well, you know, no matter where they are, for me, diversity is not, it's, it's not really even the conversation, it's about that if the right founder is fixing the right problem in the right way, they should have access at least to the conversation of the capital they need to experiment in this way, be supported by two or three you know, uh, investors who are all using these tools. And then if we do that, we're actually, that's what we're, what really this is about is unlocking all of that new value. And I think that talks to what you're saying about the younger founders. You know, it's like, there is this whole wave sitting there that this actually gets to and, un and unlocks. Um, and, and, and it's just thinking in this different way. And some maybe being kind of uh, impacted by the, the market, asking more of people actually will sort of, I don't know, almost almost uh, allow this new model to come to fruition, particularly we're talk obviously we're talking in these early stages and and like the entry into kind of the ecosystem, all of that. Um, that's more, more of a sort of general point if anyone wants to, to dive in. Because I think that's the hopeful thing about it. There is actually this untapped potential. Um, it's been like idling capacity. Gareth and I were talking about that, you know, that there's, it's sitting in there. And actually this, what we're talking about, the exciting bit is, that is being able to unlock that and speak to it and kind of enable it. Um, rather than just kind of waiting at the top of funnel through your network for these pitch decks to kind of drop in and try and find the next deliverer or something, which is very unlikely to happen. But actually, there's all this other opportunity if you can get to it and speak to it. So it's a kind of closing comment for the open question for the for this section. I suppose that the point I take from that, if, if I'm using a, a recent example, we've, we've been doing a, a growth planning workshop a couple of weeks ago with a, a fintech in, in the city. And... Um, like everyone at the minute, they want to use employers as a way to pick up, shed loads of customers in one fell swoop, as every VC has been advising people as a way to get through the adoption curve. So it's become a, a highly competitive space if you want to use employers as a, as a way to win batches of customers. Um, and we don't have much of a budget and we need to find a, a head of go-to-market, a, a head of compliance and governance, and a uh, we're outsourcing development too at the minute, so we also need to insource that at some point on, um, on no money. So um, what we're talking about is doing less with more and being able to find those niches and scale within them. And what we're finding is, is that instead of us, we'd have to used to get, say, if we're gonna work in a highly competitive space, that means we need a high touch sales process. We can't um, only leverage marketing um, and word of mouth to get through because B2B is always gonna be a bit more difficult and then competitiveness makes it even more so. So there's gonna have to be a sales process in there. But by leveraging founder tech, we're able to get good people and get them to be creative because they're not being sucked into doing tasks. You know, they're not cold calling, you know, 100 
chief HR officers to talk about their benefit programs and getting rejected 99 of those calls. You know, they're actually being creative in thinking about what kind of campaigns can I put together and then going through that data and seeing what comes out from it. Um, and I suppose that's the, the exciting bit is that we can go a level higher now on who we recruit for and we can actually get you know, top-down um, responsibility. So someone who's strategic, tactical, and is doing the, what we call the Spartan level work and actually cranking out that process. So I suppose that's the exciting thing for me is that you can get a lot more responsibilities in one person by leveraging all these tools out. Can I add a, a slight, because <clears throat> I think that's fascinating, and, and you were also, I think, getting at the, like, what does this do in terms of, of, like, founder potential that's been untapped? And I think on our podcast, I found it hilarious, because someone drew a drawing after us. I came off thinking I'd been incredibly negative about the space, and then someone did a drawing, and it just said, like, no, as, like, the main drawing, just like the words no, because um, I think you'd been very optimistic about where it was going, and I think where I do get really optimistic um, is that it's not even just that this there's this this group of founders that are untapped because that's kind of always been there but it's that there's a now new mechanics um like spvs that allow people to do much smaller tickets that mean there's now totally different potential in terms of capital that can come into the space and i think if you think about we were talking about um steve blank earlier doesn't take cold outreach of emails I'm like of course he's not gonna like he's a grandfather of lean he's taught on every accelerator like he's got enough deal flow <laughs> but actually there are and I, I don't believe that like the big funds are necessarily really doing enough to change who they invest in and how because the honestly like their incentives aren't to like um and I heard a horror story the other day someone was talking to they're an inclusive angel group and they were talking to a group of LPs about investing in more diverse founders and they were like absolutely not because the pattern is I know the pattern is that people aren't investing in them so that pattern means something <laughs> it's like ah but where it gets really exciting is if you have these new mechanics that allow like genuinely access like who can put capital into the ecosystem and then you have people coming from very different backgrounds and their version of like success and pattern recognition looks totally different. Like they're not reliant on the old archetypes of what a confident founder is or what an intelligent founder is or what a personable founder is because it's not just, to your point, like it's so relationship led. And like, I'm probably gonna connect really well with someone who I can go on like a massive trip down memory lane and we can talk about different pubs we went to in Oxford. Like that is an immediate point of connection, but it's super damaging if we have the same people in the same space that can make these connections. And so I get really excited by the like the scalable piece, not even so much on the founder side, because that's kind of always been there. <laughs> and, and it's not getting much better, much faster. But actually, I think what is shifting is who can invest and, and not just in terms of crowdfunding, because that still doesn't solve the problem, because to crowdfund, you need I think that I think they're now saying 90% of your capital. Yeah, 97. <laughs> Yeah, so it's never solved the problem of dem democratic access because it's always needed 40% and it's now 90%. Yeah. Um, so if you didn't have those angels in your network to raise from, you're always going to be screwed in those routes. But actually, if you can now take smaller tickets, if angels can come in and say, I am going to invest £1,000, but I'm not going to screw up your cap table or totally divert your attention because I recognise how to do it. And I think massive shout out to someone who is not here, but I think is being one of the biggest drivers for change in the ecosystem is Andy Aim, 
who runs Angel Investing School, and he's trying to educate an entirely new generation of angels um, from different uh, backgrounds, different races, to those who are represented in the UK ecosystem. And I think, yeah, I think once those shifts start to happen, like who is injecting the capital, it really changes. But until who has the capital changes, we can make it as easy as we want to invest in these massive untapped founders. But it, yeah, it won't shift. Any questions before we wrap up and move on to the next section? Okay, thank you very much, guys. Cheers. Okay, I'd like to invite up Gareth, Ifty, and Anthony to next stage. Yeah, for like 10 years, I thought it never happened. <laughs> and sitting next to each other. He's <laughs> <laughs> moving away. Have you seen that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> do you just want to, want to introduce Yeah, I'm just out of here away from both of you. Gareth, why don't you start? Uh, yeah, so I'm Gareth Hawkins, uh, angel investor, um, one of the principals at Henley Business Angels, uh, also now spinning up um, Angel Syndicate to be a super syndicate to aggregate the broken angel investing system as I see it um, and try and fix some of the frustrations. I'm also investment director at Block Dojo, the uh, incubator that uh, accounted for 24% of the, block, the UK blockchain deal flow last year and ranked as top four um, first check investor in the UK according to Bohurst, which was quite an accolade for an incubator that was going for less than two years. If Nasser, uh, founder and uh, leader of Vested. Uh, Vested is uh, uh, a little startup relative to my dear friend here. Um, just trying to change the whole dynamic about uh, participation in businesses, recognizing and really building on the whole notion of the ownership effect, whereby if you have a stake in an enterprise, your commitment, your contribution to it changes. So making sure that everybody whoever is key to the success, the success of business has the ability to have a stake in it. You're just taking away the cost and complexity that stops people from participating, whether it be your teams, your employees, your advisors, your NEDs, even your investors, just make, taking away that, that, that noise that stops people getting involved. In the same way, he's super passionate on giving your employees and team ownership of the company. I'm super passionate on helping you raise investment faster uh, at Seed Legal. So, uh, you know, the fastest way to do your funding round, and I think a good fraction of all uh, funding rounds are now on uh, Seed Legal. So I'm hoping I'll see some friendly faces in the audience as well. So, yeah. Anthony, we'll, we'll, we'll start with you because it's a leading question right at the top. Um, in the intro, I think just before you arrived, I said a uh, pivotal moment for me in just thinking about the space was seeing um, a presentation on Seedfast about Seedfast and seeing your graph where you had it at 12 o'clock, you can have a conversation about a deal yeah. and close it by five or six o'clock. And that actually really blew my mind because if you spend time in the space, you, you realize it's the drag around deal, deal flow that is probably the number one thing that frustrates people, creates inefficiency, missed opportunity. When you started to sort of think about framing an ASA and branding it and doing it and creating that product, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it's had such an impact on, you know, kind of shrinking 
ideal timeline. So it'd be great to just hear a little bit about what was it that made you think, okay, that's the instrument. This is the way we're going to kind of tackle that. Okay, so it may you know, horrify people, but I'm not a lawyer by background. <laughs> I used to head up iPlayer and so on. And when we started Seed Legals, you know, people would call us to do the funding round. And I keep having calls with people going, I'm looking to raise 500K, but, you know, I'm not there yet. And then they have to wait for months to get all the investors together. And it's a bit like organizing a road trip. You know, you have to get all the people to go on the bus and the bus can only leave when the last one goes and the bus has to be full. But like, why do you have to wait so long? And it bugged me because... I thought, I'm here to help efficiency, not just to package up the same thing that was before. So then when I came across an ASA, we didn't invent it, we productized it. It's like, it's like calling an Uber for individual investors. And so you meet someone and you can create a document for them super easily to take their investment. Um, and, uh, and you don't need to set the valuation now, the valuation will be determined later. And I would joke then in 2018, my goal was to show you how to do a funding round. And in 2019, to show you how not to do a funding round by you know, getting individuals on board. And, and it took off slowly. Initially, investors, uh, many investors, uh, some investors still aren't familiar with the concept of I give you money and you give me share. You mean you don't give me shares today? You, you give me shares later? That's weird. But I think people have now come to understand it. Um, and the data shows there's more money now raised outside of a funding round than in a funding round. And I think it's time is very much now because uh, with valuations down, that means if you were looking to raise, I'm looking to raise a million pounds, and then it turns out you can't get the valuation you want, you can't find investors, but you really need money. So what if you could kick the valuation can down the road when hopefully valuations are back up again? raise a smaller amount now not have to set a valuation so it's all sort of come to pass the combination of knowledge that of such a, an alternative and the need for it and i think on on seed legals you just see the number of asas climbing and funding rounds is somewhat more flat and so i think it's a, a fantastic solution of course all things are double-edged sword there's, there's more risk for the investor there are also founders, I'm super keen that founders don't misuse it by essentially writing IOUs and then not cashing them in. And so my goal is to make sure that it contains the checks and balances for both parties. With, of course, HMRC, like God sitting there going, the conversion time has to be less than six months or you're not going to get SEIS or EIS, which then frames the entire ecosystem pattern. Have you done any studies on on sort of incre increased fluidity because of this instrument do you have you have you sort of looked at actually we've shrunk and deal flow timing from three months to two weeks or days I, I i mean i'd love to have a cur you know an actual data but i think anecdotally you just get off a call and like two days later people do the first seed fast as opposed to months later doing the first round so i think it's changed a lot it's the difference between you know, I've got a few investors wanting to invest, I have to wait for the lead, and I've got a few investors, wait, let me do something for them. I think the, the, the winner of the most seed fast, most successfully, has to be the founders of the Thursday dating app, who raised two and a half million pounds on like a hundred seed fasts. And at their peak, they were doing a seed fast about one an hour. I think they were standing in Trafalgar Square with a, a I mean, literally, there was a picture of them with a, with a big cardboard thing. So standing on the embankment on, you know, the wall of the Thames came, raising, send money. And uh, there were machines for doing it. And they say they couldn't have done it any other way. That's the high point. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Gareth, so let's talk about sort of 
fluidity <laughs> and coordination and angel investing. And when we spoke, that's a conversation about like that, which kind of addresses that fluidity from a different perspective. And you've got views on that and what you're doing with angel syndicate. Do you want to talk about that but through that lens of how you need to kind of make the engineer things, they move in a much quicker way? Yeah, I mean, what Anthony's built with the Seedfast and what the ASA does in, in principle is, is solve for the, uh, the inherent delay in that, um, in that fundraising process that comes from trying to coordinate and corral multitude of different disparate stakeholders to come together at a particular you know, arbitrary date uh, when everybody's got to the magic number. Um, and yeah, hats off to, to the process. It, it has definitely improved access to liquidity for those companies that need it at the most vulnerable point of their life cycle. So uh, it's great. As an investor, I hate them, sorry, but the uncertainty uh, is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a put off to me. And um, it's a trade off, isn't it, ultimately, that what we're looking for here is to enable um, startups to get fast access to liquidity. And at the same time, try and solve for some of the other complexities like um, massively complex uh, and um, long-winded cap tables, which when you've got 100 seed fasts, you've got 100 investors all directly on your cap table because you've not been able to aggregate them into a particular vehicle like an SPV, for, for example. Um, but if you're trying to aggregate everybody into an SPV and, and a number of the, the dojo um, incubator graduates have gone off and, and spun up founder-led SPVs, and have found that they're playing the waiting game again because that whilst they're trying to get to a, ca a tidy cap table, they're waiting for the money to drop in before they can close it. Otherwise, they're paying lots of different deal tranche fees to have small closes along the way, which actually works out counterproductive to the cost of running a CFAST. So there is this really strange kind of um, opposing forces of uh, or multitude of different requirements that founders have to navigate between access to liquidity, trying to find a valuation that works for everybody, trying to keep my cap table tidy, trying to appeal to all the requirements and all the interpersonal things that Hattie talked really eloquently about um, with regards to the, you know, the relationship of the, of the angel investor. And it's all a consequence of timing. It's all a consequence of inertia and delay, um, which, which we have to solve for. Because I mean, my, my, my angle is that angel investing is a curious beast that is fundamentally inefficient because it takes too bloody long to go around the dog and pony show of, of you know, um, pitching to 20, 30 different angel groups to fill your initial 250 to 500K asks. Um, something's got to change. And something what, what has to change is scale and um, the ability to execute at speed. And we have the tools for those things, but the system hasn't embraced them in the way that it should have done by now, and that's what we're looking to try and change. Do you think that there are this new wave of investors that are hungry, open and hungry? <clears throat> like, typically younger it? investors, typically exited founders, typically people from tech that want to pay it forward into tech uh, are, are either going the solo capitalist route, uh, which is, has been fan fundamentally fantastic for the, uh, for the startup economy and the ecosystem, or they're affiliating themselves with um, angel groups. But what I'm increasingly seeing is new angel groups spinning up to serve the needs of those that different era that new era of angel investors because they're not willing to necessarily follow the same playbook that was that's been pursued for the last 20 years with very little change but therein lies the opportunity right because they're coming to it without that legacy 
and just and they just sort of know how they want it to behave. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and they're having to muddle through, and that's where Paddy and Mary's uh, SPVs that come out of Odin are fundamental because you've got you've got the groundswell, you've got the scale, you've got you know twenty high net worth liquid former founders with the motivation to want to invest, and they can do it like that. Um, and it, that, it doesn't necessarily translate to the traditional angel group approach, um, where the hearts and minds have to be corralled gradually. Do you see it, if going sort of linking the, the conversation from earlier, that actually the smaller, I see it as when you're backing these early stage opportunities, you're t- probably talking about small groups, small syndicates, micro syndicates of three, four people that want to back a point of view, domain expertise, and that, that's actually the future in this initial phase. Yeah, but you hope those three to four... Uh, individuals have each got 50 to 100k that they want to throw in that uh, towards that cause um, and again we're into this opposing forces balance piece again where um, to Hattie's point um, yes we now got these vehicles which we can keep really tidy cap tables by having lots and lots of small checks but hey you've got to speak to hundreds of people each of whom wants to put 100 quid into your business how efficient is that it's not um, so, so you know that piece isn't automatically going to solve the liquidity problem and help founders close earlier. What's going to help founders close earlier is talking to a large number of people at the same time, all of whom are active in the space, looking for deal flow that is curated specifically for their appetite, um, and giving them the frictionless tools by which to execute their their deals. And perhaps when, you know, because as I've said to you on your podcast, angel groups don't co-invest they don't collaborate as well as they should do. There's this weird opposition going on where we, you know, we talk about it, but we don't do it um, as as well as we should. Uh, so putting, giving them the ability to come onto a platform where it's as simple as clicking a button to syndicate a partially closed round from one uh, group to several other groups that might want to co-invest alongside and expeditiously close that round. That's got to, and the tools exist to do that. It's yeah. got to be something we need to will into existence. That's the point. And most of the, even though we're talking about tech and the tech, the tech is not hard. That's <laughs> not that's, that's, nothing that we've discussed is that hard. It's a cultural it's, change. It's exact behavioral cultural change. If they're just joining the dots, when you started to look at, I guess, in the same as Andy looked at sort of, you know, the, the, the deal flow fluidity, when you looked at the cap table, what made you think, I can do better than that. I can, I can attack that. I can reframe it. I can make it do more, and I can make the incentive structure around it do more. Well, we didn't start with the cap table. The cap table was almost an outcome. Right. The notion of getting everybody who's key to the success of the business vested is, is is the starting point. The fact that as a consequence, the cap table gets complicated, and I hear exactly what Gareth was saying about well, you don't want a million people on there. So the fact that you have all these different relevant people with a stake in the enterprise makes it complicated. So the challenge for us was really about trying to make that straightforward and easy for founders and indeed other investors in due course to to be able to understand what was happening on that cap table and to be able to take out the noise. So the cap table in of itself is a pretty simple tool. And having a hundred people on there in of itself is not complicated. It's just being able to make sure that when you're coming in, you can see what, when you invest, the outcome will be uh, fully diluted, you know, uh, 
fee money, post money, just being able to look at all those dynamics very simply without getting confused by the magnitude of, of participants. So for us, the cap table were almost an outcome. We had to solve the problem of the cap table complexity to make it possible for everybody who we felt was important to be part of the, the vested community, as it were, to be vested. Do you think that's changed and evolved even since you sort of were, you know, were at that stage of journey because of the things that Anthony and Gareth are talking about? Are you, are you actively looking at how all these new structures, this, this shifting terrain is affecting what you're doing? Without, without uh, doubt. I mean, you know, what Gareth is doing, you know, being able to invest in 10 companies at a time, all similar structures, being able to bring new investors into that um, community or into that uh, enterprise without having to you know, think twice is, is part of what we've tried to make possible. Going back to what uh, Anthony's been doing for, you know, I think we met first time in 2015, was it? At Covent Garden, something like that. Yeah, um, you know, ever since then, those journeys have, have not collided, but they've progressed in, in a very interesting way. You know, bringing more and more people, having everybody who's vested in the business Having more people vested in the business is going to lift that business because everybody's, you know, when they get that paper, they want it to be worth more the day after. So they become advocates. They become, you know, champions for the business that they hold paper for. So having more on it is not difficult. It's just making it easy so that the challenges that Gareth was talking about don't come to pass is the key. Except I didn't actually mention the two challenges that VCs are trying to circumnavigate, which is that one of uh, voting on resolutions and trying to corral all of your shareholders to sign off on preemption rights or, or shareholder resolutions. And, uh, and then the creeping KYC AML piece of who are these people on your cap table? Because you know, we um, in, in the incubator have, have had to kind of have this um, epiphany because our first cohorts all went out with 20, 30 people on the cap table yeah. from the end of their pre-seed. And now they're raising seed and the VCs are going, oh, uh, well, who did the KYC on these folks? Because they, they don't want to put their LPs at risk to folks that they haven't been able to check out themselves. And so that's fine. It's a valid concern. Um, but the KYC element on a, a, you know, a hundred strong cap table is an issue. Now, obviously, uh, you're doing that when you're doing an EMI, ES, ESOP, because you've got your, you know your colleagues. Absolutely. Right? You know who they are. But going back to the point about... Uh, um, that that front end and the you know getting the shareholders to agree on stuff the structures that we've built but the share class. vested the share class you can determine who votes when you can see who's voted who hasn't voted if they're relevant to vote you can go chase them if they're not relevant to vote it doesn't matter you can move a position whether it's an ordinary resolution whether it's a special resolution you know you know the power that you have and with the articles that we've built. It allows the founder and the business to actually move forward, even if some of those 110 small investors don't turn up to vote. Mm. It doesn't matter. You can still move forward with your with your game. Yep. When it comes to KYC, it's something that we've had to, being regulated, we've had to be very careful about who participates, who plays in terms of the founders of businesses and indeed on some of the, the investors, especially if they become... Um, PSCs. But as with the changes that uh, Companies House are going through at the moment, um, 
through the Lords, I think, at the moment, the new bill around prevention uh, on um, corruption. I think that's going to make it even more difficult. I think that's part of what we're making sure we're ready to take on so that your investors and the businesses can you know, run fast and um, feel safe as well because we'll know who, who's playing. So for those in the room, what's interesting is that uh, you know, person A and person B want to get together and give money, but there's friction. So, you know, sometimes investors go AWOL. You try to find them and they, they, they've disappeared into the rainforest. You can't find them for a resolution. So lots of clever people come up with creative solutions. One of them is you wrap them all up in a special purpose vehicle so that your VC never gets to ask who they are, but they're the same people. They're just wrapped up in here. Uh, I solve it on C-Legals in a different way with you snooze, you lose which is if, if they disappear uh, in the, the shells agreement, you can set a provision that after 15 business days, if they never respond, their you know, uh, acceptance is deemed. So we're all, you know, when, when, when things go wrong in, in a round or something, we'll creatively try to find solutions. Um, and, and I think that's fantastic, as essentially people coming from not law firms come up with, with <coughs> friction removing things to help and, and now you get to choose lots of different solutions that are available. Anthony, do you have uh, on the whiteboard what's the next seed fast, like the next product, can you, if you can talk to it, is there a next innovation that you're thinking about? There are no, no of course. Uh, well, we've just launched an exit product so you can sell your business on seed legals because uh, firstly, uh, I think what's interesting is that exits had always been uh, you're either going to sell for hundreds of millions or, you know, it's, you're a loser. And I, I saw my perception shift came from looking at the acquire.com or microacquire, which is building a marketplace for low exits. And if you think about it, for a founder or, you know, if you're an employee, a person, you can uh, get money and broadly either employed by a company or you're a contractor. That is, I think it's quite interesting. You're a repeat serial creator of small businesses which you exit and if you have an exit for a million pounds and there are a couple of founders uh, for you it's fantastic there's five hundred thousand pounds it may if you've raised investor money it may not be a great deal for your investor but who said you have to do that so i think there's going to be a rise the next thing will be people uh, with shopify businesses and many others maybe the new slew of people creating AI things to do something will look to spin up a small business and sell it for, you know, a few hundred thousand pounds, a couple of million pounds, and and this will write, uh, you know, lead to a new form of actual, you know, sole trading and, and exiting, um, and I'm I'm quite enthused by that as a concept. So of course it needs to be a pack that works for investors as well. So I want to make that much easier to do. Um, and, and I think just like Seedfast, the, the, the things we all do, I think start by working out the, a legal solution to the problem, in this case, a much cheaper, faster way of doing it. But then that sets in people's mind the fact that you can now have a tool to do that and you now think that something that you weren't thinking before. So once upon a time you thought, ooh, I have to sell my business for tens of millions or it's a fail. Now you go, actually I can bootstrap Sell it for a million. If I've taken investor money, that may not be good. But if I haven't taken investor money, that's a win. I'll just rinse and repeat. And as I was researching this, I was quite amazed to see uh, companies like Flipper, which is 
uh, an Australian company, obviously named after the dolphin, um, <laughs> in a nice pun, um, have like 1.2 million visits a, a month on their websites. It's huge from people selling usually their Shopify sites. And Shopify now verifies the amount of traffic and revenue you've got because it's all on their platform. And so there's this whole, I think, new, I mean, small, but generation of founders going, I'm going to build a business, I'm going to flip it in nine months and, and then repeat. And I, I quite like that concept. Uh, unlike funding rounds where we've done a, not, a, a lot and we know what's product market fit on the exit product, we're very much in discovery phase. I've no idea how many people want to sell for 100K, and in which case they might go, we're not even bothering with legals, versus 50 million, in which case, sorry, we're going to go and spend a fortune with a big law firm. Um, but I think that's going to be interesting. And I quite intrigued to watch that space over the coming years. So that's one of the few yeah, things yeah. we're working on. Yeah. Are you offering Stripe integration into that? Uh, one of the well, things that Andrew acquired does really well is say everybody that lists on here, if you're using Stripe as your settlement layer, then plug that in because we can download and import all of your stats around revenue and customers and et cetera. Yeah, so I think, well, that's one of the things I'm not doing yet because I haven't discovered yet who my audience is. Mm. Will they have that sort of Stripe thing? But it, it will be interesting. The other thing is on a sale of the business, the money flow is a bit different because the buyer is paying the shareholders and doesn't go into escrow. There are a few more complexities when you're investing in a company, pretty much trusting that they're going to do good things with your business. You don't need too much DD. Otherwise, you, I mean, it's not that they've done the KYC bit, it's that their product is going to work in the future is what you're betting on. But when you buy a company, it comes with all sorts of due diligence and have you paid your taxes and is anyone suing you? So there's some more around that that needs the, the buyer not to just go, here's a big check, thank you, can I get the code? What code is that? So uh, so that, that, that's a kind of interesting yeah, space. Very, very interesting. One last question, you sort of um, anticipated, Gary. If, if I was your chief founder tech officer, and then you, you, you learn how it vested in IFTI. Would you, with Angel Syndicate, be looking at some point for an API that could seamlessly plug what you're doing into what IFTI's doing around cap table, so you had both products can talk to you? Because it's, it's, it's a wider conversation, but part of founder tech Would is, I be looking or would IFTI be pitching me? I, I don't know, it's the idea that, that when you connect all of these things up, I mean, as he's alluding to, once you have data doing things and interesting, you can do a, a, The whole ecosystem is stronger when there's uh, integrations. And I think some of, some of the great innovations that have come out in the last five years from folks assembled in this room, frankly, uh, it is, is to enable that, I think you talked about it earlier, about that um, ecosystem intelligence and the, the, the data that comes from one part playing into informing another part. And I think, um, API first, microservice first for me is, is always the way to go because every single one of these now established service providers is, 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 has ushered in a paradigm shift in, uh, in founder tech. And if, if we can integrate a few of them and join them up yeah. and take the friction out of that, it could be an absolute game changer. Uh, are you looking at that if it is? We've already worked very closely with our friends at BlockDojo and we provide that um, uh, base capability for them to both start up and then uh, bring in uh, initial investment into their businesses. So what you've talked about is already taking place. There's a number of uh, early stage uh, accelerators that we're working with where we both incorporate the business and allow that flexible, agile 
um, investment and participation capability without even thinking twice, right. including yeah. for the founders. So one of the biggest challenges is that uh, founders end up not always uh, going down the journey together forever, whether it's six months, as Anthony was talking about, or several years. That change in the journey, if you don't get it right, can cost you a lot of money. Yeah. So one of the things that we've actually taken on board straight away is that whole notion of that agile partnership. The fact that whatever happens, without having to go and spend piles and piles of money, if you're going to ditch out in six months, you can't afford to be uh, doing anything else. So you need to be able to have that agility that if, if, if one of the partners moves off from day one, you can adapt to that without that being a pain to the business or even a stall to the business and then just carry on the journey. So that ability to work right from the start, from the incorporation through to their investment rounds, through to them flying off as unicorns, is is part of what we're trying to do and, and integrating that and making sure that we're building technology that's not just about getting rich fat quick you know we're all past that. i mean all of us are old enough to to what we're trying to do is actually make a difference and by actually working together we can actually make much much bigger differences we're not going to solve all the world's equations on our own or yeah. our all the world's algorithms but i think there's enough um, collaboration and community, as, as you can just see around here, and we're actually learning from one another yeah. as well. We're actually leveraging off one another's ideas. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, agreed. Um, any questions um, for whilst we've got Anthony Nifty and Gareth up here before we move? Patty? So, really curious, on the following on from there, what's next? I'm curious if you've seen or thought about any mechanics that might drive the diversity. So, for example, um, found an income share agreements where investors can spread the risk between, I'm going to, you know, a bit like a student finance and going to take yeah. your future earning potential and I'm going to keep some equity in the business. I've some of these mechanics have been tested. I wondered if any of you had looked at any of them and if so, like, what was exciting or worrying about some of these things in the space and particularly curious from an angel syndicate perspective. Is it something we started asking our angels? Is, you know, what different things could we test with them that are these mechanics that could drive them to invest in more founders? Um, so you're talking about tranches going in, or are you talking about partial partial liquidity events and um, cashing out and keeping some uh, shares into the business? Yeah, so, so the, the way that the particular mechanic works is, is if you basically spread the risk across part of it, you can earn back. The founder can earn back their equity over time. So oh, right. Free agreed share buyback. Yeah. And then the second part is. Uh, but you, you keep an amount of equity, so, and I'm not an expert in it, but you keep an amount, so you've still got that outsized potential exit, though it's smaller, but you balance the risk that you're going to lose all your money, because actually, I back that the founder after this business can go and get a job over the next six years and, and pay you back by an income share agreement. Goodness. <laughs> Which would you like? Uh, I'll, I'll give you an investor's perspective on that because I'm not entirely sure I want to give you a founder's perspective on that. It doesn't sound all that um, attractive. Having my equity back, yes. Having to pay you back if it doesn't sound all that exciting. Um, there you are. Um, so, one of the things we're baking in at angelsyndicate.uk is a secondaries market to A, help improve liquidity for angels because I think a lot of the 
inertia that perhaps that comes or a lot of the, the lumpiness of angel investor participation is due to the very long patient capital period of seven to ten years often in cockroach companies that look like they're going to be a unicorn at the beginning but then kind of plateau and being able to trade out of those and then double down and you know pay it forward into a next SEIS or EIS investment seems like a really good idea but of course the founders will be participating uh, as shareholders in that secondary market so they could initiate a buyback through that kind of a structure um, obviously at a prevailing price rather than a pre-agreed call option um, so yeah, well, certainly worth worth thinking. Um, one of the things we're also doing at Angel Syndicate is trying to make sure that we've got fairly well balanced BVCA compliant um, uh, subscription agreements, for want of a better phrase, that two or three options that the chapters can choose based on, but, but trying to effectively standardise to some extent some element of that. So it's probably worthwhile considering if there are more of these new agile evolving methodologies that give a share of the upside, but gives some founder security. You're, you're right, they're not for everyone there if you can't get capital because there are, you know, multiple things stacked against you, they're, they're trying to <laughs> and get more people to invest. Yeah, I mean, when, when you uh, articulated it, it, it sounded a little bit reminiscent of some of this predatory venture debt stuff yeah. that's baked in, uh, going around at the moment that I'm not a massive fan of. Well, I think, yeah. I, I, sorry, I think what's interesting is that philosophically, uh, you know, we, we, we're tech folk, and so you start by thinking people are doing something inefficiently. We're just going to have a tech solution to make it better. But the question is, are there other solutions? So, for example, you know, vesting, as we said, founders often split up. And one of the challenges when you uh, assign equity is you create your company on a company's house. You go, you got 50 shares, I got 50 shares. But actually, it turns out later on, one of us got kids and we can only spend half the time. And then why did we agree 50-50? Could we come up with some other method? And there's a method called slicing pie which means every week you get together and you go, the pie's got a bit bigger, you're getting this amount of the pie because you're awesome and I get a small amount because I was only there half the time. So there, I, I'm fascinated when there are other solutions than you have in mind to the problem. The question is, is the other solution good or bad? And it might be good in terms of uh, nobly filling a goal. On the flip side, if it adds friction, then it may be counterproductive. So if you go to your investor and go, He's got 50 shares, I've got 50 shares, we've got three year vesting sign here. Investors know what it's about. But if you go, we've got a bit of a pie going, and he gets a bit more pie every week, and investors go, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> come, come back when you've sorted it. So, um, you know, the, the problem is if it, even if it's a good, if it adds friction, it may ultimately not be as effective. Does as, it add dilution? Uh, sorry? Does it add dilution? The, the growing of the pie and the issuing uh, of new shares? I think broadly the growing of the pie works until you get your first funding round. And okay. then the pie gets Thank baked God. in a sense, because otherwise <laughs> it, it doesn't work. But it also potentially yeah. creates problems with SEIS if people are giving themselves more shares and then that creates tax problems for the founders if the shares have got a value. So I like the concept, but it comes with issues. I think founders should all read up on it because it helps you uh, create in your mind the, that you think a few years ahead at the beginning to go, because often people ping, you know, hey, you know, uh, I've got a new co-founder joining, I, what percent equity should they get? I've been doing this for a year. And they think they need to pick a number like for today, 
but I say pick a number that makes sense three years from now when you uh, the, the, the fact that you were working on this for a year has disappeared you know you're now a hundred people you've been at it for three years how much time and value are you bringing that's the time to think and then work backwards so so think about you know maybe it's like reading a you know, dust capital, it doesn't mean you need to be communist, but it's good to have a grounding in, in theory to decide what you want to do. So, yeah. uh, and slicing pie is a really good example. I mean, slicing pie helps people at the very early stage help understand how to distribute equity between the, those bringing money, bringing capability, endeavor, etc., cetera, to, to the table. But moving forward, I think Anthony's absolutely right. You have to keep a plan for what's happening going forward. So based on you making this commitment about the next two years, three years, here's how things are going to best. We've had um, you know, businesses coming in from outside of the UK, picking up you know, uh, directors. These directors may well contribute. So from day one, this is what you'll get based on delivery X, Y, and Z. And that can be uh, a tangible time horizon or some sort of measure, whether it's sales or bringing in investment. Or whatever anything that's tangible you can vest against and you should promises are worth nothing loads of people will promise all sorts of stuff tangible stuff whether it's money coming in that's tangible here's some shares that's a bunch of sales that's fine that's tangible here's your reward based on when we set this up because that's what you want to make sure the tax point and the share transaction is when you shook hands on the deal, not when they've actually delivered the deal, because by that stage, you know, some of the value has already been accrued, and when they get the shares at that point, there's a much bigger tax bill. So you agree the deal on day one, you make sure that, that is sealed, and whatever happens, whatever changes over time, the reward is based on what's actually delivered rather than what's promised. So you can shake hands and agree on something without having all the due diligence or, or whatever that uh, you may worry as to whether the people are actually going to deliver. It's if you deliver, you get this. If you don't, we'll make it easy for that to be pulled back. And that rather than the dilution that uh, Gareth was talking about, you essentially get a concentration of those who are still in the business. And it's easy as pie. Just don't forget to include it in your uh, fully diluted position in you're talking to indeed and, and, and what we will do is make sure you're, we help you with that because everything to do with your cap table will help you sort out and it's almost a, a consequence of looking after you making sure that your equity transaction is safe and sound that will make sure that those diluted undiluted positions are covered we should do this with like general elections so that the government just doesn't get our vote. It gets well, the reverse messaging yes. <laughs> 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 This would be brilliant. How do we pull back? How do we pull back from those uh, politicians that we gave our trust to? Uh, on, where's the answer? I don't know. That's another <laughs> question. <laughs> no, the discussion. <laughs> it's a brilliant bloody discussion if that was possible. Yeah. Um, Before you're investing, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Gareth, Ifti, Anthony. Um, it's fascinating. Thank you. Um, we'll we'll move to the last part, um, but yeah, really, really interesting. Thanks very much, Gareth. So, Daniel, if you'd like to come up, um, Matt, and Jim. Is Jim around?
Ja. Ja. Um, welcome. Maybe starting up, Matt, do you want to talk about you? Sure. Just introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Matt. Um, I'm, what am I? I guess a journeyman would be a, a accurate description. I've done lots of different careers. I was a journalist for 20 years, uh, a carpenter. I did photography for a bit. I built five businesses. I'm on to number five now, I think. But where, I think what I'm here for today is to talk about uh, mental health. So I'm a trained therapist and um, I am building a business called The Brink, which is all about trying to sort of bring psychoeducation into a kind of broader, more accessible realm um, through storytelling and through narrative rather than through what most of us experience mental health through is sort of a kind of cognitive model, which is do this sort of process and you'll be better. I think that's limited, so I'm going down a different route to use narrative and, and sort of in more emotive ways of conveying ideas um, using video, photography, writing and things like that. Thank you. Uh, hi everyone, I, uh, Daniel, I'm the uh, CEO and co-founder of Shipshape.vc, which is a uh, search engine that's free to use that enables founders to identify which investors are aligned with what it is that they're doing in their business. Jim. Thank you. Um, Jim Shirley, uh, I'm a CFO by background, um, been through two high growth scaled exits, um, done a bit of angel investing as well, uh, and now I'm the founder of Funding Hero, uh, we're a platform that teaches founders how to fundraise, um, and we try and put that spin of CFO financial strategy, uh, but give people a structured process to learn the fundraising journey, um, and you know where they're focused on kind of high growth. So this last uh, part is to look at the potential future ecosystem. Daniel, I'd like to start with you, and this idea of kind of valuing, elevating openness and transparency, which I think lies at the heart of what you're doing with ShipShape. Do you want to talk about, again, kind of like how you arrived at that that was a problem that you wanted to take on and how you framed that problem and where, you, where you've landed? Yeah, of course. Um, I should probably feed, feed into this, uh, yeah, um, what, what you're doing as well. Um, so uh, the entire business came to me as a result of a mistake that I made in a, a previous company that I was working at. Um, it was a startup company and uh, it was day two. And the CEO and co-founder of that business um, said to me, oh, Daniel, you're good at research could you find which investors we should be speaking with for our Series A? I thought, I have, have never, never done this before. I, I thought, oh yeah, how hard can that be? I'm good at research. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, oh yeah, sure, no, no problem at all. And I quickly realized that it was not necessarily a, a research problem so much as a network problem. But if you didn't have a network already, that could help basically outsource the compute power of the research uh, actually, it then becomes a research problem, but all of the tools that were out there had fundamentally been built to help investors find startups, not the other way around. Uh, and that, I suppose, uh, feed, feeds into um, where we want to create a different, uh, essentially a different method for the ecosystem to operate. And you know, as challenged as the sort of current, I think, you know, how you refer to it earlier, as challenged as the current sort of funding ecosystem uh, is and how challenging it is for uh, founders to find capital. Actually, capital wants to make sure that it's allocating in the most efficient way possible. And if your capital is designed to allocate in certain niches or spaces or if you've got a certain thesis, actually the method 
and the manner in which you communicate that is going to basically have a massive impact on the type of deal flow and the relevance of that deal flow that you can then attract. So what we want to essentially incentivize is if you're transparent about what type of deal flow you want to attract, you get that relevant deal flow. Can you just, so people who haven't used ShipShape, give an example, just a case of how someone will use it successfully? Sure. So, so yeah, there, there's a, um, uh, just just last week, I, I put up a post on LinkedIn saying, um, if you're a founder, if you know a founder who's raising, comment, just describe what their business does, uh, and I'll put a personalized uh, results page link uh, from our search engine. So um, there's a, a, a space tech company from Malawi that is basically planning to do low Earth orbit satellite communications technology. Obviously. Obviously. Yeah. Um, and they basically commented that. And, and so the way that our search engine works is we basically look through the mass of unstructured data that we can associate with the individuals that work at investment firms to say, actually, you know what, here are the five or six people in the UK VC ecosystem who talk about low Earth satellite communications technology. And that's the way it works because they publish the content. Actually, that founder now for free can go and access that data. Right. So, Jim, with the founders that are onboarding to Funding Hero, yeah. can you sort of maybe connect dots about why that might be valuable to them and save them lots of time? I mean, it's just removing friction, isn't it? You know, I think the, a lot of the themes are not about how to remove friction every single step. Then founders will spend months and months or years trying to find the right investors. If you go across, you know, most VC websites, their thesis can be quite ambiguous. You know, they're sector agnostic, but you know, what does that mean? You know, and it's trying to literally signpost the money you know, as quick as you possibly can. And you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of you know, ShipShape. I think it's just, it's, it's really changing the game in how much friction it removes in the process. Do you think on that as well, um, on, on one of the slides that was rotating earlier was this idea of, um, you were here about value-add investors, yeah. right? Who will sort of, sort of be maybe a more inexperienced founder will sort of say, you know, I can add this and I'll do this. And, do and actually there's no domain knowledge there at all, very little. Do you see that as kind of, you know, Daniel as well, same question is like, like, because a lot of this as well is, 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 it's not necessarily bad faith, it's just bad practice, right? Getting rid of that, iterating rid of that, be through tech, through tech like ship shape. Do you see, I mean, you must've seen a lot of that. We've always seen a lot of that where an investor was sort of caught a founder through that promise and it's not there. Yeah, I think it's just for, for any business to kind of scale quickly, you need the best expertise around you and people that understand your niche and your domain. And as a founder, you know, you're going out there looking for investors. And if you find an investor that shows some interest in you, then fantastic, they've got some cash, but how much value can actually bring? And the second you can find the right investor that brings value, it just kind of, you know, 10Xs, you know, that money straight away. I think one of the things on from the, you know, angel investing side, which Gareth will probably be able to talk about is, I always think about trying and get 10X of value, not just the cash. You know, and that value comes from you know, their domain expertise and their contacts and black books. And if you can find the right investor that can open those doors, it, you know, it's just absolutely massive. So you know, anything to kind of get people to the right people in your domain, in your speciality, you know, it just makes such a difference. Are you thinking like that? Obviously the, the product you've got at the moment is like, I imagine the first iteration of, of many, are you starting to think about almost like investor due diligence or did you, do, how do you frame that where you start to kind of look at an investor and you're building that network, you're trying to get that 10x, how, how will ShipShape look to that in the, in the next two to three years? How could that be, how could that operate? Yeah, so um, one of the things that we're looking at now and um, using some classifier models that, that, that we, we've built 
is looking at what investments those investors have made previously uh, and then also tracking through okay they invested in this company way back when okay they raised five million uh, in a seed round and they're now uh, raising i don't know series c and uh, being able to look through say okay well they did something in i don't know like biofilm for wound healing way back when they've now raised that significant valuation significant valuation increase um, and just picking that, from, from, that up from uh, what you can pick up from um, the open uh, open source, essentially. Um, is there evidence actually of this investor not just talking the talk, but actually walking the walk in terms of the like how you can prove what the value, what the you know, uh, hypothesized value of the portfolio is um, now versus what it was back then? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- these are just... Um, sort of dreams and ambitions at the moment. But yeah. we would really love to be able to show to founders, okay, this investor has a track record. They know the domain and they also grow companies and they grow the value of your equity because ultimately, I think that's one of the things that we all, it's really easy to forget about and I often find myself doing, doing it. I have to remind myself that actually these are humans at the end of the day and they, yeah. they want to be growing the pie for everyone that's been on, on board or, or on that journey. And so if they've got a track record of doing it, I mean, obviously past performance is no... Uh, sort of predictable of the future, but it gives you some greater degree of confidence that your equity is going to be worth more. So Matt, we do want to get to the mental health and then the last point about founder archetypes and repositioning them. But one of the things you didn't reveal, which isn't confidential, is your role at Decrypt and Blockchain, that you're probably one of the leading blockchain journalists in the country. Um, I'd be interested just in this part of the conversation that there are parallels here to what blockchain was you know, promised, right? About transparency, residual yeah. data, all of that kind of... What's your thoughts as you sort of sit here and hear sort of Daniel talking about what could happen? Like, are you just interested in, in what you think from that from that point of view? Well, on, on sort of info, access information. Yeah, well, yeah, and how and how uh, information you know accrues as an asset, mm. transparency. Do you see parallels in what we were talking about in sort of from that from that world? Yeah. So, so, so blockchain's grand grand thesis was the quantifying and democratizing of data, and data is information without context. So that's kind of how blockchain thinks about it. And the great promise was if you make all information public and searchable and, and readable, it would lead to better decision making. And it didn't because fundamentally what the fallacy of blockchain, having worked in it for five years, is that it's an over obsession with it being a technological problem when it's actually a people problem. It's Fundamentally, all, all the talks I've heard here tonight, all the problems, all the friction points are between people, not between process. It's about how to get people to communicate better and, and share information in a more collegiate, collaborative way, rather than how good can we make, make a piece of technology, right? So the blockchain kind of focus for the last five years has been, what's the fastest chain, right? What, has, what can finalize transactions quicker and has broader capacity to support more transactions than the other, right? So all these chains came along with these massive capabilities and, and the blockchain I worked at for a few years had this giant capability that could be as quick and as fast as Visa or MasterCard's network, right? And everyone goes, great. And then no one turned up because who cares, right? What The problem they were trying to solve was a technology problem, not a people problem. So all the things about information and access information you know, the history of humanity has been about gatekeepers and middlemen, right? If I hold information that's worthy and powerful, that gives me value, right? 
if I give it away to you, then I've lost my value. And so blockchain and technology, I think more broadly, has always been in the business of trying to either hide data and, and, and wall it. You know, if you think about the walled garden thesis of Apple, right? This App Store was this lovely safe space for its for consumers to play in, but really what it was was a high walled space where Apple could learn what customers like and then incorporate their own features into their own operating system. Kind of thing. So this transparency, non-transparency, openness, we always keep coming back to the same problem, which is people's value tends to be in how they hold and contain data rather than how they open it and give it away. What do you think about that, Daniel? That's true. <laughs> no, but do you do you uh, to the point? And it comes. It has. It's been a theme of the evening that you know we're talking really about people and behaviour. It's come up. So when you think about what you're doing around people and behaviour, what are the what are the concerns about creating that behavioural shift? You know. Yeah. So so I think that's a really big reason for um, why we've chosen the route that we have, which is fundamentally we don't think it needs to be a big behavioural change for people people are producing more content and content creators are are being rewarded by social networks anyway i think that's very human uh, it's uh, technology that mimics real life ultimately has a much higher chance of success and ultimately there are technology technological applications that remove the friction of um, the downside that can occur when things go wrong in real life, you know, um, from a legal perspective, you know, particularly. Um, but ultimately, yeah, the, I think the, um, the the value that is um, derived from any technology is fundamentally how closely it can mimic or at least um, persuade others to act in a positive way that leads to a greater sort of economic benefit from those interacting in that system. I think that, that's fundamentally where technology is best applied. Because yeah, having similarly worked in a, um, a, a DLT startup that didn't quite know what problem it was solving. Um, yeah, it, 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 it can, the, the technology can, um, can fundamentally solve lots of problems, but you need to have identified the human problem that it's, it's going to solve. Yeah. Okay, so bringing things to a close around the, the human problem, um, I think one of the things we talked about, and Hattie, you and I again talked about this earlier, is that breaking the founder archetype um, of sort of um, one founder fits all, you know, and the unicorn founder, and celebrating that, I think is a key part of this. Like we can get all the technology in the world, but if we're still viewing founders as being these sort of superhuman mm. people that can find these deep scalable niches and take it all away. And, you know, Antti made the point of that, maybe there would be these sort of micro exits and all of, all of that. I think that feeds into it. Um, Jim, I'd like to sort of just get your thoughts on, you know, when you're talking to founders, do you sort of educate them to think about themselves and sort of much more of their journeys in tranches? And then Matt, I want to do one and then bounce over to sort of the mental health and the well-being of the founder community. So, do you do you, do you can you have you seen that happening where we've got a much more sort of um, nuanced definition of what a founder is? It's not just sort of you know Adam Newman from WeWork or you know like do you think we're beyond now in so much more sophisticated version of of that? But I think um, I mean what I was trying to teach first is it's relationship first, cash second, and that's the thing that kind of gets lost really. And you know it takes a good six, 12 months to kind of build a relationship, to kind of build trust. No one walks up to someone on the street and says, give me 20,000 pounds for my startup. That's the relationships first. And, you know, I think the way that 
the investment world works currently is that you have to go to an angel group and pitch or you approach a VC for money and it's money leading it. So we need to find ways to kind of, you know, draw that relationship first because that's what's going to, you know, make much better relationships. And I think, you know, with the, um, the, the you yeah, know, the seed fast instrument, you know, the way now we have kind of low codes, we've got, you know, AI is changing the game at how you can do more with less. You know, the initial seed round should shift. You know, it should be, how can I get 10, 20 grand checks, prove something, then go get some more cash, rather than risk losing 150 grand, 200 grand first. Do it in smaller tranches, but you can do that by building relationships, you know, putting smaller amounts in, more frequency, remove the friction, you know, platforms like ShipShape, they can then find the bigger checks, you know, from the VCs when needed. Um, and that, you know, constantly removing friction, you know, but relationship first, that's the first priority. So, Matt, when you're talking to um, clients that, you know, are founders, do you see, we, we all know the, I mean, I think what's one of the good things in recent years has been the awareness around mental health and, and yeah. founders. But do you think what they come, when they come to the, uh, the party as a founder, what they have in their head is still sort of that pressure and how they think of themselves and conceive of themselves. Do you think we kind of, part of this conversation needs to be like up, upgrading, upgrading that as well? Yeah, and I think it was a point that came up earlier. I think, Hassi, you were talking about diversity in founders, right? So there's an archetype that we recognize in founders. It tends to be educated white male who really confident, assertive, um, a bit of an arsehole, if I'm honest. <laughs> and, and you look at like the, like the, the kind of lionized founders of our age, you see Steve Jobs, Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, they're dickheads, right? They're horrible people. But that has been kind of commoditized in a way of that's what you need to be to do this work. And it also is a real sense of the way they kind of get depicted as these, as these singular forces that have conjured these massive world-changing companies into, into life, right? And so if you're a person looking at, at, at what's around you, the world around you, and going, well, I have to be like that, and I have to be so totally focused on this idea that I have to, for it to consume me and be everything that I am. And, that, and if I'm not that, then I'm not going to be a founder. Then why am I even here? And, and that, I think there is such a kind of stereotype around to, to start a business. I think sort of entrepreneur has replaced sort of sole traders. You think about people who've always run businesses. Like, like I have friends and family who run market stalls, right? They were, would have been entrepreneurs in today's landscape but the, the language has changed and therefore the identity has changed and I think the point that comes out with the startup world is is you need to be this sort of really cutthroat driven person with a seemingly magical ability to cope with the demands and pressures placed upon you especially when you go and ask for money from people right like the expectation that you deliver on something alone and all these people all this money want you to deliver in a, such a timeline is almost an impossible position for one person to be in. But there is this, this assumption that that's how you do it, right? That's, you have to be this person. You have to be this sort of Teflon founder who can deal with incredible amounts of pressure and also have a support network that totally allows that, right? So it's, it's a thing I say to founders lots is if, you take, if we all agree that it takes a village to raise a child, right the old kind of adage it takes a village to build a business right but we don't ever talk about that we don't ever talk about like you know steve jobs and and, and wozniak right it was it was his supportive caring nature that allowed steve to be a complete twat to everybody because he's the one that built everything right there is we, we don't pay enough attention to who does someone come with and how do they treat them 
and how do they kind of enrich the person who's kind of flagship of, of, of a company. It's often overlooked and all the talks of touch upon the interpersonal dynamics at play in businesses, but there's not enough questions asked over what they're like. Like, start, when I pitched for my startups, I went to get funding for, they were really interested in the team and you know, the idea and stuff, but they never really asked what the team was like. I never really spent any time with the team. Like, I do group therapy work, and if you want to see what a group of people is like, put them in a room together for an hour and just get them to talk. No agenda, just watch them. And you'll see archetypes emerge and people be more dominant, people be more submissive. And watching a founder in an environment that's not structured and not controlled, you can learn an incredible amount about how they would treat a person when under pressure. Right? The, the, the startup mentality of you have to be able to sack people to be successful might be part of this dynamic. But how you treat those people is more important. Like I worked for a large... Um, blockchain company called Consensus, which was founded by Joe Lubin, who was one of the co-founders of Ethereum. They went through three rounds of layoffs in two years, and the way they did it was if you got a calendar invite in your diary, you were fired. And that was it. And that's how they fired people. And then what happens is the market contracted, they went from, they hired, went from 100 to 1,500 people in a year, and they went back down to 300 a year later. And when the market came back, no one wanted to work there anymore because it's like you treat it as like absolute shit. And Joe Lubin's this kind of like semi-autistic savant type, which everyone kind of thinks that's what you need to be. But he can't have a conversation anymore. And so he relies upon his lieutenants and the people around him to build these relationships to convince people to work for him. And this is all overlooked, I think, in this case. One one of the things that maybe at play there is this and I think I think ship shape is trying to address this is power dynamics right you alluded to that but maybe sometimes people behave like that if they feel like going all the way back to the beginning the asymmetries like this whereas i guess what you're doing daniel in some ways is giving people immediate power over a conversation they're going into a, they're going into a meeting as your linkedin post said just tell me a bit about you and i'll give you it's not just information it, it's power and maybe that maybe that recalibrates some of those behaviors because maybe people have to have that front to go into a, a relationship that's like that, with a dictionary that's like that, yeah. you know, with structures they don't understand. And, and maybe if they had a bit more, hey, I saw that article that you wrote, that's really interesting. Let's have a chat about that for 40 minutes. It's a much better way to start a conversation. Do you, do you ever see it like that around sort of redressing those kind of power, dy power dynamics in that way? Yeah, sure. I, I think humans are uh, quite, I, I, I mean, like, yeah, they're very, very tribal. There are there are few. There are a number of species out there in the world um, that have tribal dynamics, and I, I don't think we're that far removed from 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 apes that we can't observe some parallels in the way that the dynamics of of sort of yeah, uh, monkey societies work. Where ultimately, if someone comes with submi is submissive and brings a gift or or is um, asking for something that they desperately need at that point, ultimately you see those power dynamics there. I think it's the same in human nature. Whereas if if you come along and uh, like, I don't know you, you've got um. Let's say you find particularly sort of you know, uh, juicy coconut, but you need to work as a team to open it up. Let's call that that coconut sort of uh, you know, um, deep space exploration. And you need to work together to open up. If you can come and say, oh, I know, I know that you're also interested in that. Actually, you know what? Um, that's a much better way of of changing it from being a sort of um, you've got something I want, please give it to me. How, what's your price? Into 
there's this amazing thing up there that we both yeah. care passionately about. And I think that, that totally changes the uh, dynamic from being one of relatively uh, adversarial forces to one that's much more sort of um, looking to jointly solve a problem. And I think actually this is something which uh, I really like, uh, really find politics interesting. The choice of seating arrangements um, in uh, different political systems is really interesting. Like our House of Commons, for example, uh, is very adversarial, which is why all the benches face each other. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you look at sort of, you know, the US, um, I'm not saying that it works out, <laughs> but if you look at the US, like they've got this sort of semicircle, it's all looking in the same, they're trying mm. to get everyone to look in the same direction. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think actually, if, you, if you're sharing information that shows why interests are aligned, ultimately that stops it from being so adversarial and makes it more sort of, how can we go forward together? So just to try and bring it full circle from the first, first part, um, you know, I think what we're talking about as well is the elevation of this kind of initial call. So we've got, we just sort of found a tip that kind of gets you in the door. And then that first call with that investor from which you then choose a series of instruments to kind of convert that interest is becoming increasingly valuable. Mm -hmm. And I hear what you're saying is that, that if you could come to that call from a position of mutuality, you're just discussing the problem and why you want to solve that problem. And you know that that person's actually written about it from then you get different dynamics and then you get founders that are behaving differently and so maybe that's that and also i guess a good thing post covid is people the deals are being done um where there you know people have only met each other remotely so you can't that has happened in a, in a positive way so maybe we're just talking about that initial framing and changing the dynamic so it's not i i need some money to your point jim give me some money you know it's actually a conversation of all things you know like who who, who knew that that might actually be a good thing but that, mm. but we're trying to get as at the heart it is that behavioral shift so that, that conversations having between that founder and investors that small circuit micro syndical investor mm. however it looks but it's a proper conversation that, that can then be facilitated quickly um and, and and then managed on an ongoing basis and all of those that's sort of kind of the future i see that we're talking about which doesn't sound that hard. It doesn't no. sound like doesn't that sound like that much to ask, that that much to ask for. But. I mean, off the back of that as well, I think. I mean, two of the companies I was fortunate to kind of go through their scale to exit. They're both second time founders, and all they spoke about was culture. It was just from day one, and you know, our, they were very very keen to say everyone that comes in, if you're not part of the crowds and you don't work to our culture, the doors over there, you're free to leave. And the second business our motto was proud to wear the t-shirt. And every six months, that was one of our leading KPIs. You know, what percentage of staff are proud to wear the T-shirt? And that kind of put a smile on everyone's face because, you know, it was always like 90 plus percent. And that's when you know that a company will pull in the right direction and grow fast because everyone's going the same direction. Uh, to everyone, it's called psychic salary. What? The, psychic salary, it's the idea that the thing that you do pays you in ways beyond money. Right? Yeah. It, it gives you meaning, gives you purpose, <clears throat> a sense of direction in your life. It's It's... Something that gets spoken about in the care industry a lot. Why would you want to go and care for the sick and dying? What they find is that people who go through the training derive incredible value from the work, which keeps them there. It's never it never gets spoken about in the startup world unless it comes through that kind of cultural kind of lens, right? Yeah. It's like how do you give someone a sense of meaning and purpose in the work they do, so they want to do the things that that re replicate the kind of company's culture in themselves. It's not a pitch. It's never a page on a pitch deck. You see, it's what culture you're going to create. Yeah. You know, and you know, you don't want everyone says you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You know, you want the team around you to kind yeah. of 
play that role and stuff. And yeah. as an investor, you want to kind of see what are those traits that the founder can bring and then the, you know, the company they can build around them. Yeah. So. And, it, and it's, the culture is one of those things that you know it when you see it, but it's really hard to describe. Yeah. I think that sums up the whole thing. <laughs> um, I'm aware of time. We do have to be out of here um, at 9.30. We've overrun because I let, let it run because it was just, it was so fascinating the conversation. So I'd like to thank everybody who came and participated. Um, I do think there's something going on. I think there's, there's, there's a there there. And I think if we all continue to talk to each other and it, the things start to sort of integrate, as we alluded to, I think this is there for the taking within the next two to three years. And what we're talking about today could be seen as like twee, people will look back and think, well, what are these people talking about? Of course it operates like that. You know, of course that's what, how, how founders and investors would uh, interact and, and align and evaluate each other. So thanks everyone for coming on a, on a Monday night. Thanks to Dre again, I don't know where he is, uh, for the space um, and having us. Um, yeah, and uh, we haven't got that much time. He's gonna kick us out in about 10 minutes, I think. So um, we haven't got that much time, but there is a bit of time to, to mingle. Um, I will uh, put, the logos of everyone up in a second. But thanks, thanks so much, it's been great.